For today's scripture reading, uh, we'll continue our series uh, in Matthew chapter 20. If you want to turn uh, in your pew Bibles there uh, or open your own, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. The flowers, flowers may fade, the grass may wither, but the word of God endures forever. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only for one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Sends the reading of God's Holy Word. So in the kingdom of sports, uh, I call it a kingdom. I remember at seminary, my uh, the, the janitor at seminary was a coach as well. And he, uh, he was talking to me about the rules of the game. And he said, football is a kingdom all to its own. It has its rules. It has its kings. It has its officials. And so he calls it a kingdom, and, and so I think that's probably a good, a good way to think of it. Um, and in the kingdom of sports, uh, all players and coaches know that the beginning of the season sets the tone for the year. Uh, I'm most familiar with football, and so I have, uh, I'm going to uh, rely on uh, my experience there. On the football field, this is especially true, because... Uh, the beginning of the season starts right at the end of summer break. So when the, uh, when the day the coach tells you to circle on the calendar for the first day of training camp, everyone has to roll themselves out of bed, out of vacation mode, and strap on their equipment, uh, not just for practice, but for the, the dreaded three-a-day practices. This is the week, after all, that will establish the expectations for the entire year. And three-a-days are hard. Uh, notoriously, all around, it's like the one day you just dread, you're like, all right, summer's over. Sprints and conditioning 
to get your body out of vacation mode, uh, grueling drills and more conditioning, lots of mistakes, lots of corrections from coaches, lots of yelling, lots of yelling, <laughs> uh, lots of on-the-job learning, but that's not all. Three days are hot, so hot that uh, the laws of the land have actually mandated water breaks and strict rules about how long a coach can keep his team out there for each session. Uh, for those who really did just roll off the couch, not all athletes just roll out the couch. Some actually train all year. Not everyone does that. But for, for those who do just roll off the couch and try out for the team after sitting around all summer, three-a-days regularly serve as a pruning tool. When the bush gets unruly, you prune, you, you prune off the stuff that needs cut. And that's exactly what happens uh, with many of the football player wannabes. Those struggling realize they didn't sign up for this, and they quit. They quit the team because of the heat of the day is too hot to bear. It was too much. Well, in the kingdom of heaven, while it is still in the process of coming to earth, Remember, we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come. We're in the middle of a sermon series with Pastor Mike. He's going to be preaching on how the kingdom comes to bear. And so in a real way, we're uh, since the time of Christ, the kingdom has been coming to bear. And it's already here, and yet, not yet, not all the way full. <clears throat> and so while it's still in the process of conquering the earth until Jesus returns, it is much the same way as three a days. The kingdom um, has, already has already come. It's time to roll off your couches. There's work to be done, readying up for the restoration of all things. And the heat of the day is hard to bear. Its workers must battle the world from without and a wearied soul from within. Many days are scorchers, and some troubles carry over into weeks and months and years. And so today, as we consider our text from Matthew, receive the warning from our master to persevere with thankfulness instead of a begrudging attitude. For the master generously blesses you and all he hires to work for him. So again, persevere with thankfulness instead of a begrudging attitude. So in the flow of Matthew's narrative about Jesus' life in the gospel, he is aiming here for heart change in his leaders. The phrase kingdom of heaven, uh, to paraphrase uh, William Hendrickson, uh, means that all spiritual and material blessings that comes from God being king in our hearts and recognizing and obeying it as such. And so uh, when, when, he's, uh, when, when he's telling his narrative of, of Jesus' story, he puts in this section, uh, this section is very thematic. Uh, and, and then this is, he uses these parables as a way to say this way or that way. There's tension in here that makes, your, that makes the reader and the listener put yourself in this scenario and think, I'm going to be one or the other. And it makes you choose, and it, it really puts the pressure 
of, 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 uh, of considering your obedience and discipleship of the Lord and how you're following Christ on the listener. And that's what he does uh, when he starts this parable. <clears throat> um, he starts it off by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is life. It was just a good time uh, to hear from uh, one scholar, Klein Snodgrass, about parables, because sometimes we don't think rightly about how Scripture uses stories like parables. It's, parables are just a, an extended, uh, an extended um, simile, uh, like or as, and there's a whole story about it. Um, Snodgrass says, parables are not one-in-one analogies. They picture actual realities partly, but are intended to make people think and question and often do so through hyperbole, surprise, and inexactness. So when the readers of Jesus, when the listeners of Jesus would have heard this story, they would have been very familiar with a lot of it. But some parts would have been different, strange, surprising. Um, and that's, that's what we'll uncover uh, a little bit today. So he starts off by the comparison of the kingdom of heaven to a master of a home who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. And then the story uh, goes on. And so here we have uh, the compar- the com- this uh, comparison of the kingdom of heaven to the master of the vineyard hiring for his workers. Obviously, in this story, the master is not so wealthy uh, that he's hired this task out to someone else. He's doing it. Uh, he's out there doing it um, himself. And so he goes out uh, early, it says. People are ready. These are day laborers. And the life of a day laborer, the people who are in the marketplace, was a hard life. Uh, it was a life um, <clears throat> uh, where you're going and you're just trying to make ends meet. Um, some commentators, money is hard to, to kind of uh, figure out between now and then and inflation in different ways. But um, some commentators says probably four denarius a week to live on. So if you figure, you work five days, think of it like basically a day's wage uh, is a denarius. Uh, but the life of a day laborer is more difficult uh, than that uh, of even a slave in the day because uh, a slave owner had a financial investment in their slave. They wanted this person to be able to work for them and so they'd protect them, feed them. And so there was, uh, there was a level of, of um of protection that, that they had that was easier because they kind of knew when the next meal was coming. Not so much for the life of a day, of a day laborer. Um, in fact, Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, uh, both record laws about day laborers. This is what, uh, <clears throat> what uh, Moses writes in Leviticus 19. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Why do you think that is? Because he needed the wages to, to eat. Uh, and if you waited and waited till the morning, uh, you would have robbed him of a meal. He wouldn't have, uh, he would not have been able to provide for him or his small family uh, that he uh, often would have had. Deuteronomy says, You shall not, Deuteronomy 24 15 says, um, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your town. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. Or if he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against, uh, uh, lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. So, pay 
uh, these people, the, the owners uh, needed to pay their workers so that God didn't act against them. Um, and if they were guilty, God would hear the cry of the poor because that's just what God does. He hears the cry of the poor and the prayers would be against you. So pay your people who need the money now. So this is the life uh, of, of the parable. This is the life that we're entering into here. <clears throat> and so uh, <clears throat> and so as the, as the parable goes on, uh, he goes early and uh, there's tension that builds in this parable uh, because the master keeps going out um, all day until the 11th hour. That's a phrase that is pretty uh, vernacular around here. I waited to the 11th hour to get the assignment done. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> the 11th hour. It's like the last minute. This is it. Well, the 11th hour is because uh, normally a typical workday lasted from 6 to 6 or 7 to 7, sunrise to sun up, sun up to sun down, sunrise to sun down. Uh, and so it's 12-hour day. Uh, so those who are early are early on, probably probably 6 o'clock in the morning. Those who are late, probably 5 o'clock in the, in the evening, just before it's just time. The 11th hour. These are not the teacher's pets that he's getting at the 11th hour. They're just not. And so, uh, and so there's, uh, he keeps going out. Uh, and I, I really appreciated uh, and was struck by the way that he made a deal with each of them. So he goes to the first people, the early birds, uh, and he says, uh, let's, let's agree on a denarius. And they're, uh, they're thankful. I mean, nothing, there's no complaint. Uh, it doesn't say they're thankful, but they agree. Yeah, that's good. I'll, I'll do that. Um, that sounds like a fair wage. At the end of the day, I won't cry out to the Lord against you. Pay me my money, and our relationship will be one. That's, that's the contract that they have between them. But that's not what he says to all the other ones. All the other ones, um, starting, uh, starting with the second time he goes out in the third hour. So we're looking at 9 o'clock, maybe? He says, uh, why are you standing around here idle in the marketplace? Uh, and he says, you go to the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. And we can presume he says something like that to the rest of them too. Whatever is right. All right. So they don't really know what they're going to get, but they're going to get something that is right and fair. And so each one goes out. Uh, and then it kind of fast forwards it uh, through it all. And, uh, <clears throat> and, and, then, he, and then he talks to uh, his hired foreman. Uh, and, he, and he tells them, uh, which is kind of the thrust of this whole thing. There's this whole last and first thing. Uh, this first and last. So the people that he called first are going to wait in line last. So you can picture uh, heyday coming up and saying, alright, how many hours did you work? One denarius. Alright, next. How many hours did you work? One denarius. Alright, next. How many hours did you work? One denarius. They just kept coming, so the people at the end of the line knew these guys just showed up. They haven't been here all day. We've been here all day. They haven't. Um, this could be good for us. Yeah, their hands are oh, all right. This is this is this is uh, what's changing their thoughts is the generosity of the master. They see, boy, everybody who comes up is elated because they got more than they were expecting. Well, we expect to get a denarius. 
maybe we'll get more. So this is the attitude here. It, uh, there's a, uh, a presumption here uh, or assumption. Uh, either way, um, it's, uh, it's mentioned here in the text uh, this way. It says now in verse 10, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Proverbs 13, 12 uh, says that a, a hope, a, uh, a desire, a, a hope uh, deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A hope deferred makes the heart sick. They have sick hearts a little bit. They were hoping for more, and yet they only got what they agreed upon. Um, now, he said he was going to do what was right, and he was excessive in everything else. He he was generous. Uh, but when it came to them, they didn't feel the same way, and they grumbled at the master of the house. And so really, verse 10 is, is kind of the crux of this parable. And, and what is he getting at here? He lets us, uh, Jesus lets us feel the weight of this parable as if we were in their shoes, as if you were in the shoes of the first all. So we can make, we can think about how the others would feel. We can consider uh, the way, you know, that they might be, you know, elated, joyful, uh, thankful uh, that they got more than they received. Maybe even showing people, did you see what he gave us? I only worked an hour and got this much money. And like, we can think like that. It's not wrong to, to, uh, to kind of paint the picture there. But, but that's not the view that we get uh, from Scripture. We get the view of the first the ones who were called first. And, and we see that it is begrudging. It's begrudging. They, uh, they grumbled. That's the, uh, the word they use in 10. Um, and later on uh, in the passage, uh, we see the response to, uh, to their grumbling. Uh, he says, he, uh, the master says, friend. And any time in scripture that, that, that word is used for friends, He's, he's rebuking someone who's done, who's, who's thinking wrongly. Uh, and so he's not saying, hey, you're my best friend, but he's saying, look, there's nothing between us, but I, you need corrected here. Friend, am I, am I, uh, I am doing you no wrong. That is a statement, uh, not a question. He's not asking him if he did wrong. He knows the agreement that they made. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? There's the question. Did you not agree with me? What could he say? Of course, I, I agreed with you. This is the right thing. And so when it says that he did right to the others, he certainly did right to these first, uh, the ones who he hired first. And, and he asks them, he says, or did you not begrudge my generosity? Now, that is an interesting word. Uh, and, and it led to the, the sermon title, uh, Envy a curious reaction to the goodness of the Lord. Uh, we don't see the word envy in here at all, but this is exactly what's happening. Envy, it's the envious eye, or uh, some uh, old ways of saying it, you have a green eye. Um, the actual text calls it an evil eye, which I can't help but to think of, uh, of my Sicilian roots. Uh, and even around here, as I'm on the sideline of the football field, I remember being there, 
And we had a trainer there who had a little, what I thought was a pickle on her necklace. Uh, but it wasn't a pickle. I think it was actually a pepper. And I said, what is that? And she said, that is to keep away the maloikia. I don't know if you've ever heard of the maloikia. The maloikia is, it's just the word in Italian for evil, mal, oikia is eye. It is the evil eye. Watch out. And this is what he says. He says, do you have an evil eye against me? Do you see, does your eye see me as evil? Uh, and so, and so uh, people, um, oh, people have so many interpretations of Scripture. And there are so many ones that just aren't okay. This would be one of them. And so when you, if, you would, if you would search for the Maloiki online, you'll see lots of Wiccans and witches and, doing, and, and all these cultural things. And, and, um, and, and they'll oftentimes talk about the Bible and the evil eye that's in the Bible and, and how it, it goes all the way to Plato. And they think that, that part of the evil eye actually is it can be given to somebody. Um, I wanted to, uh, to paint that picture a little bit. So I, was, I read a little blog uh, from Radici Siciliane. And so this is, I thought, helpful here. It says, in southern Italy, if you visit now, you might be told uh, to not go around telling people you like something about them or compliment them without touching them and uttering a prayer. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the prayer is, Te Dio la Benedicia, or spitting in the opposite direction uh, without projecting saliva, like, uh, making sure that your admiration does not curse them or create an attachment to them. These were said to be immediate preventative rituals in order to protect others from your own admiration. I was also told the touching and this prayer was said when someone admired more than human beings in nature, flowers, trees, mountains, the sea, people are very careful to make sure their admiration did not become a spirit or ghost attached on something they found great beauty in. People were and are very careful of their own powerful energy. It's the world we live in. We, we think that we can, that we're going to curse somebody by our envy. That I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like what you have so much that in some cultures they'll give it to you because they don't want to be cursed. They don't want the curse of the evil eye. I know this is, uh, we can laugh and maybe this is new to you, but it is real in our culture. These are things, uh, they get passed on. Uh, and so people wear charms and bracelets and, uh, and want protection from the evil one. And yet the warning here is not about casting your maloikia on someone else. The crux of the text is to watch out for your own evil eye that bubbles up from a sinful nature. Even as people who have been first called. How easy it is to look at the blessings that others receive and compare yourself, compare them to what you've received from the Lord. Isn't this, isn't this the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the picture of the workers who are grumbling here? Isn't this waiting in line and watching the gifts that he gives other people? And if we really believe that the kingdom has already started to come, then we can't just say, 
that this is going to be a heavenly thing. But it's already at least somewhat here now. And so this isn't just for future application of saying, hey, I need uh, to make sure uh, that I am uh, that I'm not working for my salvation or that uh, that I'm that I'm counting my my blessings because this is the way heaven's going to be one day. This is this is the right now because heaven is already breaking through our world. Through the gospel of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's working on our hearts already. And so for here, we need uh, to be careful of the way we view ourselves and the way we view others. Here in the parable, the the view of the, the workers first called was that they deserved more. So when you find yourself with that same attitude, boy, I deserve better than that. It really is not more than Monday grumbling. I mean, how it figures. Right? That's the Alanis Morissette song. Right? It figures that this would happen to me. It figures that all these things would, would go poorly for, for me because, because why? Why would I talk like that? Because I've forgotten my master cares for me. And that I know that he'll provide for me. And I often quote the sparrows that sit out the window who are silent today, but that I wonder if the birds could give us a message that they might say, do you not have a master like us because he feeds us and he cares for us? But we forget that so often. And here, this man with a hard, uh, with a hard job, many of which you guys have, hard job, make it ends meet. He he thinks he deserves better, uh, but he forgets. He forgets the marketplace that he was called out. <laughs> he forgets the grace uh, that was uh, so uh, quickly given to him that he has a job. Uh, and so, uh, so for us, uh, we we have to work on, um, we have to work against and fight against envy, uh, the displeasure at someone else's success. It is contrary to the kingdom. There shouldn't be a ranking. There shouldn't be a privilege. Realize that because you have a call, you are privileged. And so we are to see the Lord as good and that the owner has the right to choose. And you know that he's going to choose generously. That even when you go through sufferings or when you aren't blessed in the ways that you have, that he he has given you those things for his purposes and for his good and for your good. What a great comfort in the midst of trials. And so, uh, for us, uh, for us, this is this this affects us at our discipleship level. How are we following the Lord? Uh, this comes in a section in Matthew of discipleship. Uh, the rich young ruler, which is a story just before this, didn't leave everything and follow Jesus. In fact, he chose to go home that because he had great treasure. And so uh, his disciples are there with him. They watch, they watch this rich young ruler go. And the disciples claim to Jesus, uh, as they see this man go, they say, well, this man didn't follow you, 
but we followed you. We said, we, what will we get? That's what he says uh, in uh, 19. What's, what is it for us? That's their question. And so he, he tells them. He doesn't rebuke them and say, you shouldn't be thinking about getting your, your rewards. He doesn't do that at all. He, he actually encourages them uh, with a word. He says uh, that uh, truly I say in the new world or in the recreated order, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. And now that was to the disciples, the apostles. But for everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. That's the proceeding. That goes right before our section today. Inclusio. You see that how that is included? You have the proverb in the beginning, the proverb in the end. All of these are connected stories. This affects our discipleship. Uh, so as we're thinking of the things that we've left behind, we have in mind a lot of the heat of our day. How has your day been hard? What have you had to leave behind to follow Jesus? I think first the question if we start with the rich young ruler is, have you left behind? For some here, the answer may be no. For some of our covenant children, you have seen your parents following faithfully with the Lord. But you haven't had to make these decisions for yourself. You do it because your mom got you out of bed this morning and maybe kicking and screaming. And maybe because you didn't want to wear those shoes or those pants. But I'm telling you, there will be a day coming when you will have to make the decision to drop all that you have and to follow him. That is what the call to be a disciple is. And it's not different just because you were raised in the church. And it may be even to you most importantly, whom he's speaking to, who have been called first. Because many of you hear the gospel regularly. And so you have to guard against this, I want more, I deserve more. But instead have a modest view of yourself. Fight back against your pride to maintain uh, modesty and a humility. Um, view yourselves and your life circumstances the way that God would. Don't think too highly uh, as, uh, as you shouldn't think too highly of yourself. Uh, another, another good point is to fight back against your sense of justice. Do you know what's right all the time? I'm sure you think you tell your parents you do. Uh, but I'm sure that we sometimes think as parents that we know what's right. But how many times do we twist things out of, out of proportion just a little bit? Uh, and if two people would tell the story, it might sound a bit different. Ask my wife. I know that's the case. I, I just see things with my own glasses on because I think of myself first. But this shouldn't be. And this, is, and this is why I get to envying, because I think I deserve better. I deserve better, because look at, look at me, or look at how long I've been doing this, or look at what I've had to leave behind. I put before you the story of Ruth, because Ruth 
does something that is really hard. Uh, and so Ruth is, uh, is a poor, widowed daughter-in-law who is tagging along with her, her mother-in-law back in a day when it was super dangerous to be a woman in the wild. And they were actually in a foreign country. They left their land because of a famine. And her husband had died. Her father had died. And now this was looking like we're not sure if we're going to live. And so they hear that, that there's water back in Israel. And so they go out and, and they, they go to, set, uh, to return home. And there's two daughters, uh, two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi's heading home. And she tells Naomi and Ruth, stay back. She says, uh, go return each of you to your mother's house and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Because if they do that, they'll be cared for. They will be provided for. Their husband will take care of them and they'll be fine. Um, and they all wept with her. I said, no, we will return with you to your people. Uh, but my, Naomi says this, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, that this night that should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone, gone out against me. But Ruth doesn't, doesn't listen. And she says, even though there's no husband for her here, and that's quite plain, there's no provision for her in the future. When you follow Jesus, it's very similar. When you trust him, there may be no real, it may seem bleak, and it may seem like the odds are stacked against you. And it may seem bitter because the heat of the day is hot. And it is hard to follow the Lord. But by faith, Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What a determination to follow the Lord. And this is the same, this is, this is the crux of the matter, that we are to persevere in joyful service to the Lord, even through the hard times. That we're not to give in to the evil eye to cast our eye as if God were evil to us, to see him as acting evilly towards us because of our circumstances. Fight against envy and jealousy when it rises up in your soul because Jesus willingly laid down his life to receive the curse of the cross so the world would have blessings to receive if they only believe in him. And as a Christian, your joy only comes when your sins meet God's justice through Christ's cross. Friends, if your sins remain a debt to God, I urge you to look to Jesus. 
to have your debt removed. There's no other way that they can be removed. It's only his sacrifice, the work done by him, by him in the scorching heat of the day, that will satisfy God's justice. And if you think your life is hard, consider the whole wrath of God brought down to bear on you in one moment on the cross. He bore the hardest of times. He deserved so much more. But he laid his life down, thinking of himself nothing, even death on a cross. And yet we would rise up and say we want more and we deserve more. Who is it that you follow? You follow a humbled Savior, a servant King. How does the, the kingdom go forth? It goes forth in joyful humility, serving him, knowing your place in, his, uh, in the generous master's kingdom. How do you view Christ? How do you view the Lord? See, this is not, this envy is our problem. It's not the first time that envy has struck a worker. Uh, this wasn't the first time a worker given the task of tending the fields had given his master the evil eye when he'd done him no wrong. A similar look arose in the first woman Eve from a suspicion that her Lord God was withholding blessing from her. Eve saw the tree was good for food and delight for her eyes, but its fruit, her master, uh, but its fruit that her master said would surely lead to death. She said it's pleasing. Her master says that leads to death. She says, but it looks pleasing. Her eyes saw evil in her master, and so she desired what God had not given to her when she was already provided for. He was her friend, but she befriended Satan. Just like Eve, each of you know this all too familiarly. Know that sin rules naturally over our hearts. Envy is very comfortable at home there. What makes you suspect? Uh, what makes you suspect evil in your master when you consider the difficult parts of your life compared to the relative ease, ease uh, that you see in others? What is that? It's your evil bubbling up, the evil eye. Do you have an evil eye? Isn't it so easy to put yourself in Jesus' parable, standing in the back of the line on payday, excited because of what you see giving others, uh, that you see God giving others, but then discontented when you hold the same coin in your own hand that the master's given you. The coin feels a little lighter because you thought you would receive more. There's a beautiful children's uh, novel called the Green Ember series. And all through it, the refrain they say is, it will not be so in the mended world. Friends, it will not be that way in heaven. Heaven has already come to bear. It will not be that way. You won't have to work, fight against the bubbling envy. So persevere, press on. It will not always be this hard. There is a day coming that has been that has been assured because of Christ's work. There is a day coming when all will be right. Remember that God is good. And that he has given you abundantly. Thank the Lord for his generosity. And praise him that he continues to call more workers to his kingdom.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are kind to us. That even when we are like these grumbling workers, you love us and you call us back. And you don't just cast us off, but you humbly say, come and follow me. Come and repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Father, change our lives. Make us a people who follow hard after you and don't rest on our laurels as if we've earned anything. But help us to trust in your generous giving, in the generous giving of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.